in the infinite history of the universe, even the most improbable thing is going to happen. Sure. So, you know, one of the phrases that I heard used was impossible possibilities mm. that they actually do happen. A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery, and sometimes the misery, of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Today, my guest is Stephen G. Post, the best-selling author of Why Good Things Happen to Good People, How to Live a Longer, Happier, Healthier Life by the Simple Act of Giving. The book that we talk about primarily in this interview is his latest book, God and Love on Route 80, The Hidden Mystery of Human Connectedness. Dr. Post has been quoted in more than 4,000 international newspapers and magazines, including the New York Times, Parade Magazine, O Magazine, and Psychology Today. He's been interviewed on several hundred radio and TV programs, including The Daily Show. At the Renaissance School of Medicine at Stony Brook University, he directs the Center for Medical Humanities, Compassionate Care, and Bioethics. In this conversation, we explore many of his life experiences, where they led him when he had the courage to follow a dream he had, what he learned, we talk about the spirituality of imperfection. We talk about the work he does with both those who provide care and those who receive care around communication, empathy, and compassion. We talk about synchronicity and the idea of living in an enchanted universe. We talk about the power of prayer. We talk about a term that he came up with, with Scott Peck, author of The Road Less Traveled, with whom he had a correspondence. This term, carefrontation what that means when we see someone we love doing something that's not in their best interest or something that's not perhaps good for the world or the environment, approaching that with love and care and having some kind of a compassionate confrontation. We talk about the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love, which he started with Sir John Templeton. We explore the idea of being invaded by love. There's some interesting phrasing there. We talk about how each of us can cultivate and express more love, more fully, more often, more easily. After the Enlightening Lightning Round, we talk about writing, and I think some of Dr. Post's insights are quite interesting. So if that's your cup of tea, stick around to the end and hear what he says. I'll just give you the spoiler right now, the final thought, to leave with people who are going through a challenge writing, or maybe with anything, to remember that we rise by lifting others. So with that, and perhaps the tongue twister, I don't know, I kind of want to use. I saw a kitten eating chicken in the kitchen. That's not too much of a tongue twister. But uh, I hope you enjoy this interview with Dr. Post. And if you pick up this book, I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Thanks for listening. Stephen, welcome to the School for Good Living. Thank you. I'm delighted to be with you, Brian. It's an honor. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this. I just finished a few minutes before we began reading your book, God and Love on Route 80. And I want to start with the question, we'll talk about the book in a moment, but what's life about? 
Life is about realizing the mystery of human connectedness, the power of love to save us when we even least expect it. And it's about following your dreams. I like a quote by Eleanor Roosevelt. The future belongs to those who believe in the beauty of their dreams. Follow your dreams. Don't get off the highway. Yeah, I love that too. And you have taken that very literally <laughs> in your in your life. And you tell about you tell about that in your book, God on, and Love on Route 80. Will you tell me why did you write this book? Because I have been in scientific medical environments for about 35 years. And it's assumed that people who are involved in the biological sciences are materialists or physicalists and don't want to have anything to do with the possibilities of synchronicity or premonition, the kind of higher spiritual occurrences that most of us have experienced at one point or another. But in these environments, people are really quite inhibited. They're a little bit frightened to even mention these things because it sort of goes against the grain. So now that I'm you know, a little older and I've been tenured in a few medical schools, Chicago, Michigan, Case Western, and now Stony Brook, I don't have to worry too much about kickback. So I, I wrote this book because I wanted people, number one, to be disinhibited, to be able to talk more openly about these kinds of experiences in these sorts of environments. And also because a lot of people know what I do, you know, I've achieved a few things in my life here and there, but the question of why I do it is one that I eventually wanted to answer. So Route 80 is about why I do the things I do. Mm. I got the sense when I read this, because for me, it read quite a bit like a memoir. I feel like you and I have never talked before now, but I feel like I know you. Like, I feel like you're a good friend. Okay. And yeah, and I'm really grateful for for you sharing and one thing that really resonated with me was I, I too had a dream at a young age that has influenced my whole life. When I look at it, I see, you know, and it wasn't always obvious. It, for me, at least it wasn't the sense of following a dream where in, in your book, you tell very literally that you had this dream experience and you talked about it from an early age. And it sounds like it was met with interest and support and some encouragement and to, to some degree, a large degree maybe, and you followed it. But will you tell us by this point, I hope. I suspect listeners are like, well, so what's the dream? <laughs> what, what was it? Would you be willing to tell us what it is? Absolutely. So, you know, I, I was actually from New York originally, and I went up to a boarding school in Concord, New Hampshire, a place called St. Paul's, and it was a kind of an Episcopal place, a little bit stodgy. I loved it up there because it was very beautiful, and I liked the nature. I loved the fall colors. It was just a beautiful place to be. I had a more of a spiritual orientation to life early on. So even when I was 13, 14 years old, up there I was reading spiritual classics, mystical type things. Like what? And like, well, Siddhartha, of course. <laughs> you know, yeah. everybody, everybody was reading that. You know, some of the journey books. What, you know, what I was, are the journey books? Things like Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Oh, yes. Robert Piercig uh, and yeah. Yeah. And also Walt Whitman, because I, I grew up a bit on Long Island and I sometimes would drive to Whitman's birthplace, which is in mm -hmm. Huntington. 
Yeah, yeah. And and he was also a very spiritual Emersonian style transcendental yeah. person who loved being on the road and just yeah. kind of, you know, trusting the universe. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah. And and I guess Stein Steinbeck's Travels with Charlie was another one. So by that time, and by and I'm curious, is is on the road <laughs> considered one of those journey books? Well, yeah. So 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 Kerouac actually lived for about ten years, also in Huntington, and well, actually in Northport, which is the next town to the east. Hmm. And he left after about ten years. He was very proud because he'd been able to buy a home for his mother, but she passed away, and then he went down to Florida, and he died a couple of years later. But there's a bar there, which I don't go into for drinking purposes, but, but a whole display on the wall of Kerouac memorabilia. And you can talk to some of the old clamors and the fishermen and ask them about Kerouac. And most of them don't remember anything about him. But every once in a while, you'll run into somebody who actually remembers this guy who could sometimes would sort of frantically write on, on, on rolls of paper in the corner. <laughs> and that was Kerouac. Wow. So how old are you at this time when you're reading these books? Is it like 10, 12? No, I was more like, you know, 13, 14, 15. We, okay. had, a, we had a major ancient history sacred studies at St. Paul's and I was a, that was my thing. You know, I was always mm-hmm. reading classical scriptures and, you know, my sacred studies teacher, Rod Wells, was an Episcopal priest, but he was also a big friend of Alan Watts. So we were reading uh, sort of the leading edge stuff sort of bringing together East and West. And Rod was a big supporter of, of me, even after the dream. Wow. Okay. So you're, you're there, you're at St. Paul's, you're reading this kind of spiritual literature. You have this spiritual inclination, even as a youth. And then you have a dream. Yes. Multiple times. <laughs> uh, six times over a little more than a year. And I, I can tell you about the dream. Yeah, please. So, and is it the same dream every time? Like unfolds yeah, yeah, the same which, way? Yeah, absolutely. Which was what was so striking because I'm I'm not a big dreamer. I wasn't a big dreamer at the time. Uh, I wasn't a believer in angels or anything like that. I mean, I believed in the mystical side, and I, I you know, I, I I read Emerson's essay on the Oversoul not just because it was aesthetically pleasing, but it was because I really believe that we are kind of connected in this mystery of one mind. So that was a big part of part of me. But in the morning, you know, just as I woke up, I usually got up pretty early, you know, 5.30 or 6. And in that kind of space between being fully awake or asleep, I had this dream. And it was quite striking and vivid and unusual in the sense that it really clung to me. So I would see a, a silvery mist and and it w- I couldn't see much in front of me, and it would be I knew on a road to the west, and then I would make out the outline of a youth with stringy blonde hair on a ledge, leaning outwards as if ready to jump, and then all the mist disappeared, and there was the face of a blue angel who in a very feminine way said, if you save him, you too shall live. And then the angel disappeared and the dream was over. And, you know, we did have chapel every morning at eight o'clock and I would often show up quite early on, on those mornings or six or seven mornings when I had the dream over again, a little over a year. 
and I would just kind of meditate on it. I had my favorite assigned pew, you know, <laughs> and uh, and I wasn't sure what I thought of it. I talked about it with Rod and with my classmates. We actually had a, a, a class on spiritual classics, and we read things by Jung and and Alport and others. And so I, I actually talked about the dream, and people sometimes were thinking that's totally crazy, but but some of them thought it was kind of elegant and, and impressive and interesting. I wasn't sure what I thought, but Rod was a Yale Divinity School graduate. And so he he was interested in adolescent spirituality and he didn't want to just, you know, write it off as due to dyspepsia or, you know, having to work off demerits in the hot sun. Tell us what does dyspepsia mean? means you got upset stomach, <laughs> mm. you know, you swallow something that was really bad okay. or, or, or we had a demerit system. And if we yeah. had too many demerits, we had to rake leaves all afternoon, <laughs> but, but it wasn't due to that. I was, I yeah. wasn't working off a lot of demerits and I felt pretty good, but um, he wanted, he was very interested in it. So we actually drove from Concord, New Hampshire to New Haven, Connecticut to Yale Divinity School where he still knew a lot of people. And there was a class on adolescent spirituality, and he knew the teacher, a guy named James Diddies, who was a rather well-known psychologist of religion at the time. And so I was able to talk to this class of about 15 students training for ministry about my dream. And and had you had it all six times by this point? Or yeah, this... yeah, 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 I had. And, and by the way, is are the words in the dream every time? Yeah, and the same words. Yeah, that's amazing. Same. For me, I've only ever taken language out of a dream. I know we're all different. We all have unique experiences. But for myself, I've only ever taken language out of a dream a few times. So that's remarkable to me. And, and then one, one other thing before you go on and tell about telling you Yale yeah. Divinity School students, I, I'm curious to know is what's the feeling tone of the dream? A warmth. Warmth. Um, okay. You know, just a lot of heart and love. Mm, beautiful. Sounds like the kind of dream you don't want to wake up from. <laughs> no, 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 no. And, and yeah. it, it, it was a, a beautiful dream, but I didn't know what to think of it. Sure. Because, you know, I mean, I, I figured, you know, that everybody's looking for meaning and maybe this was just something that my brain tissue had concocted and, yeah. and or maybe it was related to anxiety, but it felt more vivid. And my sense was, I was reading a lot of Oversoul stuff at the time. You know, my sense was that it was this sort of divine essence trying to break through my mundane consciousness mm. and and awaken me a, a little bit to something more. That's a beautiful perspective. Yeah, I wasn't sure of that. Yeah, and, yeah. But you know, so you so you're in the room. You with these students? It's yeah. Like 15 of you at a table or something? It's a big seminar table. Yeah. Yep. Okay. It's, it's on Prospect Street. It's Yale Div and. They asked me questions, you know, they, about what the dream meant to me. And I, I tried to explain a, f- a few things. And, and that conversation went on for, for about an hour and a half or two hours. They, they did ask me if, if I had good relationships up at St. Paul's. And I said, yeah, I'm kind of treated like a normal guy. You know, I, 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 I was clear, you know, I didn't have a lot of ambitions. A lot of people from that school wind up all going to Ivy League type places, but I wasn't much interested. In fact, because of the dream, I'd even applied to this far-fetched college out in the great Pacific Northwest because it was supposed to be interesting. And Robert Bly was teaching poetry and that was Reed College. Mm. I think jobs went there. 
for a little while. Steve Jobs went there. Oh, he was there a little later, a little later. Yeah. 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 So why do you think these other students had ambition and you didn't quite have that with in the same way they did? Well, I think that I didn't have strong goals growing up. I had more of a, of, of a sense that I was responding to, to life and not just making it, you know, I wasn't that aggressive. I wasn't that assertive. I just sort of was going with the flow more than a lot of people. And I think they had very firm ambitions sometimes that they picked up from parental expectations. You know, you've got to go here, you've got to go there. But my parents didn't do any of that with me. In fact, you know, really, I don't think anybody expected much from me, to be honest. (laughs) But I was a good student. You know, I was good in sacred studies and I was good in math and and you know, I so I, it was the the discussion at Yale was really kind of nice. I did tell the people there that I was I didn't drink. They were kind of shocked by that because they said all Episcopalians drink, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but I said I because I, I had an uncle Gary who had died of alcoholism when I was about fourteen, and I'm named after him. So it's Stephen Gerard Post. Mm. But I was pretty much a, a teetotaler from from early on because I just saw how much that heavy drinking affected him. And I just just responded to it in, 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 in a way that was, shall I say, you know, moving in the other direction. And I've always been that way. I'm still a, a teetotaler. You know, I have nothing against people who have, have drinks and so forth, and I don't hold anything against them, but it's just not my thing. Yeah, I'm with you there too. I used to drink. And one of the things I've realized is my life just seems to work better when I don't drink. It's not a morality thing like you I don't have any issue with people who do but for me (laughs) I'm less of an a-hole and I think I make healthier more sound decisions you know when I'm sober generally (laughs) yeah and for me it was always this sense that you know my I, I I didn't view mind as just derived from cells and tissues and brain. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I thought that there really was this mystical sense of mind, you know, a collective unconscious or a supreme being uh, and uh, an original mind. And, and so my mind is a gift. Yeah. You know, it's a yeah. gift. And, and so I wanted to keep it relatively clear. Yeah. Not that I don't like mirthful jokes. I love mirthful jokes. Yeah. In fact, that was one thing I loved that you talked about. I think you said it was a pastor you knew who carried around two books, the the scriptures or the Bible and a book of jokes for all occasions. <laughs> yeah. 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 My latest joke is what's the circumference of a pumpkin? Tell me. Pumpkin pie. <laughs> That's mathematical. All right. I'm going to borrow that. Yeah. I'm telling <laughs> medical students. Like, yeah. Sure. That's great. But, so, but, yeah. I, so let's go to the part. What I love about this is not only that you had the dream and you talked about the dream, you explored the dream, but that you were willing to follow the dream. And it's, it sounds like, you know, from reading this book, in some ways, it's, I don't want to say defined your whole life, but it's certainly been a thread that's run throughout your whole life. Would you be willing to share what unfolded once you, and I know there's a long thing. And part of this is like, look, if you really want to know by the book, (laughs) which I think anyone who's listened to this point and has interest would really enjoy and benefit from the book. But specifically the part I'm interested to know if you'd be willing to share a bit about is when you did follow the dream West Mm -hmm. and you did encounter perhaps the figure from the dream. Right. Will you tell about that? How in some way this dream came true? 
Yeah, in some ways, I mean, for my self-perception, it did come true. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I, that when I was 17, I, I had a job in the Bronx tutoring, and my parents put their foot down. They didn't want me to take that. They thought it was too dangerous. So we had a bit of a falling out for a couple of days. And I finally kind of relented, and I, and, and I said, well, Dad, where am I going to work this summer? And he said, how about Bill DeBono's lampshade factory? Because he knew all the lampshade and furniture factories around New York. Back when we still did manufacturing in the United States. <laughs> That's right. So I worked for two weeks in, in this factory, and it was unair conditioned and Bill had a big cigar, and he supervised me, and there were about 30 people in a line, and I was cutting cardboard for lampshades. And I had my Sid Arthur book in my pocket, you know, and my classical guitar. And I was driving dad's secondhand Mercedes 190 to the factory. And then about two weeks into it, I decided, hey, this is enough. And I drove out to West Hampton Beach, which is eastern on Long Island. What didn't and, you like about manufacturing lampshades? Well, I, I had nothing against it, but it just wasn't my thing. You know, I wanted yeah. to be tutoring. You know, that's what I wanted uh. to do. So I resented uh, having to do that. And uh, I mean, I was okay with the people um, yeah. and all that. But you were clear that wasn't, I really, I really like that. Like I admire that because I think a lot of people, they just choose, they navigate life by choosing the least crappy option or whatever someone else wants for them. And then they stay yeah. there and complain about it. <laughs> but I, well, I was good for two weeks and I, and I, I didn't do bad work, but I had to, I just felt I had to leave. So I, I had some friends out in West Hampton beach from St. Paul's and met them one Friday night and, and then about 11, I said, you know, I think I'm going to follow the dream. But here you go. See, Brian, I wasn't just following the dream because there, there was a pull of the dream. I was kind of curious about this dream of the West. Mm-hmm. But I was also pushed a bit because things were kind of heated at home. And I didn't need Bill DeBono breathing smoke over my shoulder. And so there was a push but as well as a pull. Mm-hmm. And so about about 11 at night, I, I took the Mercedes and I drove it down the Sunrise Highway. I drove it under the Midtown Tunnel. I drove over the GW Bridge, the George Washington Bridge. I'd never done that before. And then lo and behold, there's two signs that hit you right when you get over the bridge. One says 95 South and the other says Route 80 West. And I was obviously taking Route 80 West. <laughs> And I drove that that night, and, and I got to the middle of Pennsylvania, and uh, it was about five in the morning, and I was having second thoughts. I was doubting the dream, and I was going to do a U-turn over the midway and go home, and I thought, you know, my reputation will be intact. Uh, <laughs> but just as I was thinking about that, this really uncanny thing happened. The generator broke in the car, and Back then, cars had generators, and when they when they went, all the power was gone and the engine was gone, and I was just able to, in neutral, get over to the right shoulder of Route 80. I was right near Lewisburg, but that's just an empty area with miles and miles of wheat fields. It was, you know, barely twilight. So I, I took that breaking of the car as a sign that, no, I shouldn't turn around and go back, but I should actually go west. Now, I could have interpreted it in different ways. Sure. But I was going west. So I, I took a piece of paper from the glove compartment and in pencil, I wrote to the Pennsylvania State Police, please return this car to Henry A.V. Post, 44 Davison Lane East, West Islip, New York, 
516-669-5655 from his son who no longer works in the lampshade factory. <laughs> and that was it. I put it on the on the dashboard and I had my guitar, my classical guitar, my Siddhartha, my wallet with 50 bucks in it. And I stuck my thumb out in the first truck that came along, a big white truck with a guy named Gary picked me up. And Where are you going? I said, West. And he said, I can get you to Chicago. And make a long story short, I made my way to the Mission District in San Francisco eventually. And and that's where my cousin George Lamont lived. He'd, he'd done two tours of duty in Vietnam. He was a building superintendent, a uh, great guy. He was a, a graduate of Chapel Hill in Chinese studies. And and so I knocked on his door for Chenery Street and he said, well, you can spend the summer here. He made a little, little pallet on the floor for me. And I went down to Chenery and Market and I joined the Nichiren Shoshu Buddhist community. That means, you know, you've got beads and you're chanting Nam Yoho Renge Kyo, Nam Yoho Renge Kyo. And it's very yeah. loud and empowering. You went west, all right. <laughs> it's a far, far cry from St. Paul's, I think, but maybe oh, it not. Is. Oh, it is so much with with Doctor Wells. Well, that well, yeah. I mean, Rod would have been he would be fine with it. Yeah, and and his wife, by the way, Julie, he passed away, but she wrote a really nice endorsement for the book about the days mm-hmm. of the dream, and I still see her. She lives in Vineyard Haven on Martha's Vineyard. She's like seventy eight now, or something wow. like that. But she's my old dorm mother. But anyway, so I, so what happened was I was playing classical guitar in the Hispanic restaurant, so I was making pretty good money. And there was this old Japanese guy named Gus who'd been interned during the war in Japan, in, in, the China, in the Hawaii, because he was a Japanese person during World War II. And, and he, t- you know, we, he was my mentor, and, and everything was fine. I don't think I ever would have gone to college, but I drew a really bad draft lottery number. And so I called the people at Reed. And I said, I know I turned you down, but I really need a spot. And they were accommodating. So sort of early, about seven in the morning, and this is where the dream starts to come into reality. <clears throat> you know, I gathered in front of the temple, and this was again, it's on Market Street in Chenery. There was Gus, there was George, there were three or four other people, and they gave me something which I never heard of called a go-hone zone, which is like a scroll. It's not that long. And Gus explained it a bit to me. It had some Japanese symbols on it. I said goodbye. I took the Market Street bus and I got off, you know, somewhere, you know, a few blocks from Golden Gate Park. And I walked across the park because I'm heading to Oregon. I mean, Reed is in Oregon. So I walked across the park and, you know, there's the base of the bridge and I walked up the bridge and it's really, it's really misty and foggy and kind of effervescent, uh, a little bit silvery. And I, really could not see more than three feet in front of me. And I walked on the left side and I walked up to the main middle of the bridge area. And, and there was a, a railing that was only about waist high. Now they have one that's about face high with even nets and things because they don't want people jumping off. But this was just a low railing. And right on the other side of the railing, there was a ledge. And I heard some kind of shuffling. And I, I squinted and I looked to my left and I made out the contours of the face of a young man with stringy blonde hair who was, as far as I could tell, more or less exactly like the face I saw in the dream. Wow. And so he caught me out of the corner of his eye, and I was looking at him, and I said, you know, quite peacefully, 
I'm sh- I surely hope that you don't plan to jump. And he was indignant, you know, like I had invaded his privacy in this kind of sacred moment. And he started screaming out, life is empty nothingness, which I recognized because we had done Macbeth at St. Paul's in Memorial Hall. And I told him that it sounded a little more realistic out there on the ledge. And, uh, <laughs> and, and so we, we struck up some conversation. And I told him, look, I, I, I really think it's, it's very possible that I somehow am out here all this way just to, just to meet you, just to encounter you. And I explained, he, he thought I was crazy, but I explained. I said, I had this dream. And I said, I think you were in the dream. And he doubted that. But I said, no, I think it was you. And I said, you know, I had this argument with my folks and left the car in Pennsylvania. And all these things had happened. And somehow in this really almost uncanny way of synchronicity, here I was with you. And, and you know, the dream, two years ago, I had the dream. I mean, I had it for about a little over a year. And it was 3,000 miles away. But somehow here I am. And he still really doubted this, but we, we, we struck up a rapport. And then I said, look, I, I want, I want to ask you something. I want to give you a Gahon zone. And I, and he didn't know what that was. And, and, and I said, if I give this to you, it's going to change all your luck. Cause you know, Buddhists have a lot of charms, you know, good luck charms, you know, they have this little trinket and your future is going to be bright. And I said, you know, if I give this to you, it's actually supposed to bring bad luck to me because I'm not supposed to give it away, but I'm going to give it to you. We have to come on this side of the ledge and stand here with me and I'll explain it to you. And, and so I explained it to him. I, there were a couple of symbols that I explained about infinite mind and, and, and about compassion and so forth that Gus had showed me. And I, and I said, I'm going to give this to you, but you have to make me a promise. So it was conditional. I said, you, you know, you have to walk south on the bridge and you have to walk across the Golden Gate Park and you have to catch the Market Street bus and go to Market and Chenery. And I left him a note, dear George, this is Harry, please let him sleep on the floor where I was sleeping. He needs a shower. Take him down to the temple, let him meet Gus and see if you can take care of him. And then we parted. There's a little more truth than that, but we parted amicably. And, and I was just walking north now on the bridge in the opposite direction. Because again, I'm going north to Oregon. And then all of this mist just very quickly evaporated. And there was this shining blue all around me, you know, this morning wow. sky. And it just reminded me so much of, of the dream. And I guess from that encounter early in life, I never doubted the, you know, the subtitle of the book, God, Love, and Ready, but the hidden mystery of human connectedness, that there is something mysterious about this. And, and you know, it is, you know, six months later, because, you know, Reed is a funky place. I mean, I was taking a course on Alchemy 101, which was a combination of quantum physics and medieval science, you know. And, Sounds fun. <laughs> oh, yeah. And so, uh, you know, but, but, you know, time and and space and place. I mean, these are interesting categories. And somehow or another, the dream was premonitional yeah. for me. Yeah. I, I, I have that kind of experience or understanding that in in some way, dreams all seem to inform us of something in the future. But that's perhaps no surprise because in some way, perhaps there is no, like everything happens now. Everything is now in, in, in this mystical standpoint. And, and that's one thing that I found really fascinating. And, and thank you for sharing that about the, about the dream, by the way. 
that I found fascinating in, in, in the book, and you alluded to this a bit earlier in our, in our conversation, but about how, you know, you, you talk about certain things that are maybe of a spiritual nature or a sacred nature, but during your, your professional time, you know, you were careful to delineate, like you didn't write this book during that working time. You didn't That's talk true. about certain <laughs> things with certain people, you know? So in some way, it sounds like there was this division of yourself in some way, and, and maybe an idea that, that ties to that that I want to ask you about. I thought this was such a beautiful perspective that you say in the book that most of us live two lives, one that we learn from and one that is better as a result of the lessons we learned in the first life. Like, so two lives in the same lifetime. Yeah. And when I look at my experience, that certainly seems to be true. I thought that was actually a pretty, pretty beautiful insight. And, and I don't know if that's been your experience, if maybe now you're in the second life or something, but will you talk about that idea of each of us or most of us live two lives? Yeah. Well, I, I, I like to say those who make no mistakes make nothing. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, we're all flawed, and I'm, I'm into the spirituality of imperfection because if we're too perfectionist, we can't relate to anybody for any length of time. <laughs> Human nature not being as perfect as we sometimes imagine it is. But, you know, for me, I've always followed Route 80, and I've always, you know, practiced a lot of spiritual meditational type things i've i've maintained a certain kind of christianity in the sense that i i i still believe in the atonement and i go to mass and things like that but i would eventually i, I mean i had a, a career in immunology for a bit at upenn and i quit and followed the dream again from philadelphia i went to chicago to the university of chicago divinity school help me understand that because in some way i would have thought when you reached the golden gate bridge and had the encounter with that youth that you had followed the dream to its conclusion but when you say you follow the dream again what do you mean well because i always felt that i was on route 80 i mean my whole life people ask me where i'm from if uh. i trust them i will say i'm from route 80 and, you know, whether I was in Cleveland or Ann Arbor or wherever, I've, I've always wound up in the vicinity of Route 80. But, but the point is that the journey is really what it is. It doesn't matter what highway you're, you're on. Yeah. But the journey is always there. And I was always, from that point on, different because I, I was entrusting my future. I, I felt that, that there would be these wonderful moments of synchronicity where I would somehow notice and be aware of these cherishing interactions that were too perfectly set up not to involve some sort of a higher energy of love in the universe and not that everything is that way but but you know and so i always was following the dream in a lot of different ways and and, and the ep the book is a series of episodes of synchronicity but when i was at penn i decided you know i really don't want to be a scientist so I went to the University of Chicago Divinity School, which is where, you know, Mersha Eliade taught. He wrote a famous book called Shamanism. And Joseph Campbell was there at the time as a visiting professor for a few years. And all these amazing people, Chick Set Me High was writing Flow. So I was able to do a doctorate there on sort of world spiritualities and psychology and religion. And toward the end of that period, you know, they asked me, because they knew I had a science-y background, I, I, they asked me to teach at the Pritzker School in a course on social issues in medicine, which I did. And then I just kind of followed that. It wasn't planned, but I wound up in Michigan at Case for those 20 years and so forth, and now at Stony Brook. And so I've had my day job, to answer your question. I mean, my day job is to teach 
communication skills, empathy, compassion in really creative ways that are impactful on people's lives and that help patients and that help form community and love heals. And so I can do that because, you know, I got a family. I need to have a day job, you know, like, like anybody else. But I also, you know, I've always written about the love theme and, you know, in journals and I've written books and did why good things happen to good people, things that are more on the spiritual side, less on the on the empathic, compassionate side. Although in the end, they all do come together, just again, in answer to your question. I mean, they all are very synchronistic. And the nice thing is that, you know, I, I live a good life. I'm a ward of the taxpayer of the state of New York. <laughs> okay. And and so I try to I try to have reasonable sort of waist high fences, not walls, you know, like tonight, no. 730, I'm unsolicited by me. I'm actually going to an event in the town of Stony Brook that was organized by a whole lot of medical faculty and students just because they're so intrigued by the dream, but I'm uh. not doing it on State University of New York territory. <laughs> uh. you know? Well, what, what a gift. I mean, what a gift that you're sharing with others and, and what a gift I would imagine that, you know, they're that others still are interested in and inquiring about and inviting. Yeah, that's, that's really fun. That's really beautiful. So you've mentioned this word in this interview a lot. And of course, I think examples of it come up throughout the book. You do use the word in the book. Something that I want to ask you about is this idea of synchronicity. And I want to start by asking, how do you define it? What is synchronicity? It is a very, very hard thing to define. And people try hard. I'm not sure anybody's ever gotten it quite right. But, you know, I started out, actually, there's a, there's a picture in the book. There are pictures in this book of me at St. Paul's, and I was reading Carl Jung's book on synchronicity. And, you know, Jung gives this example. I think an example would help here. You know, he was trying to make some headway with a client, a, a psychologically distressed client, and it wasn't going anyplace. And she described a dream she'd had the night before of a silver beetle and he's talking with her and then suddenly they hear a little tapping on on his office window and he rolls his chair around and there is this very very rare silver beetle and he's amazed by it she's amazed and he just picks it off the glass puts it on his hand and he gives it to her and then she just was completely overwhelmed and and from then on the relationship was very meaningful and successful wow. but these are you know, he, he described it with an interesting phrase. He called it uncaused causality. So there's like two levels of causality for Jung. There's the everyday world of cause and effect, you know. But then at this higher metaphysical level, there's uncaused, capital U, capital C, uncaused causality. And that's, that's just the, the kind of remarkable thing that's so uncanny that you can't explain it as just a matter of luck or probability and such things. I mean, or if, if I may jump in for yeah, a moment, yeah. or, and, and this is one of the themes that came through for me in your book, one could, one could just dismiss it as coincidence and see this is a random occurrence in this materialistic universe, or that I think the term you use, which I love was an unenchanted universe. Yeah. So certainly we can, but when we do, I think our experience of life is severely impoverished. It is, it is disenchanted. And the thing is that, oh yeah, so, I, so I'm in a department of, you know, preventive medicine I, I, and public health. And all around here, the, the offices are filled with 
biostat people. <laughs> and is that they, as fun as it sounds? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. They're good folks, you know, but they're crunching numbers all the time. And, and they will tell me that no matter how uncanny some of my experiences were on Route 80, and they were uncanny, some in the infinite history of the universe, even the most improbable thing is going to happen. Sure. So, you know, one of the phrases that I heard used was impossible possibilities, mm-hmm. that they actually do happen. But, but to, for me, you know, to explain what happened, for example, when I was on the bridge and I saw Harry and, and all of that as, as just numbers, you know, yeah. it really doesn't suffice. It's such a stretch rationally, uh, yeah. even to think that that could be explained in terms of probabilities or improbabilities that, you know, it's a lot more reasonable, I think, to just say, hey, you know what? We may not understand it, but there is this unifying mind in the universe and we all participated in some level as the mystics have always said you know Tilla called it the ground of being and people have called it lots of different things Plotinus believed in it Schopenhauer Hegel you know lots of physicists so it's not that bizarre an idea yeah and, and actually and in the eastern traditions Hinduism and eastern traditions I mean all the all the the Upanishads and everything yeah so for me it's a lot more rational to accept this kind of enchantment and that things come together in this beautiful kind of set up way that's incredibly involved. I mean, I was thinking this morning how much this infinite mind of love, you know, had to work to set up that one encounter on the bridge. Yeah, it's, it's pretty remarkable. Tell me this, from your experience, how can we cultivate greater levels of synchronicity or how can we become more aware to the synchronicities that are already occurring? Yeah, that's a a really important question. So when I was a a kid, uh, again, up at St. Paul's, you know, we were really blessed because we could have pretty amazing speakers up there and we were very young, but it was an incredible place. I mean, folks like Gary Trudeau, Charlie Scribner, you name it, were all up there, you know, and I was the least sophisticated person, as my, as Julie Julie Norman points out, you know, up there, and she kind of liked that. But Norman Rockwell came up to talk once about the Golden Rule picture, oh, yeah. which is this incredible image of people from every background, religiously, culturally, not religiously, you know, everything, every age, every color, every it's beautiful, and they're all meditating on the positive version of the Golden Rule, which is to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And they're in this state of relative tranquility. And by the way, we know now neuroscientifically that when you just put your mind creatively on helping others, it turns off all the circuitry of the destructive negative emotions like hostility, bitterness. There's a passage somewhere in the Bible, perfect love casts out fear. Actually, that's scientifically valid. So you just can't have these networks turned on simultaneously. And so... What Rockwell said, he wasn't religious. He was Episcopalian, but he wasn't you know, deeply religious at all. And he said, do you see the halo? And if your listeners look you know, in that image, that famous iconic image, there is a, a, in the middle, there's a white circle. And it starts with the rabbi's beard, and then it goes over to the shirt of the toddler. Yeah, and then it, and then it comes, comes up around on the left. There's the, the shawl of the woman. So he called that his halo. And he said, look, you have to work hard to love others. He said, it's like surfing. 
you have to paddle hard to get the wave. But once you catch the wave, all you have to do is balance. And that was for him what spirituality is. So he thought that, you know, things like synchronicity, these kinds of deeply powerful events that reassure us that we are loved and cherished, that they're partly dependent on on how we conduct ourselves. If we just live our lives not thinking selfishly, but more about what we can do for others as well as self, you know, but if we live an other regarding and a kindly life, if we live that way, then we're more likely going to get into that energy of the halo, that energy field. And that's where things like synchronicity begin to happen. Yeah, that, that's beautiful. Perhaps one example of synchronicity that you write about in the book is one, again, I wonder if you'd be willing to relate here. And it ties also to prayer. So I'm really fascinated by prayer personally. And I just want to kind of explore for just a moment here before I ask you if you'd be willing to tell this story. But I have this sense in which we have two kinds of prayer. So I'd love also to get your your perspective, but there's the kind of prayer that's a request. It's kind of a bargain. <laughs> We're bargaining, <laughs> you know, God, if you do this or give me this, then I will, you know, and then there's the kind of prayer that's like just a prayer of Thanksgiving, an expression of gratitude for all that we have and all that we are. Right. And at some level, I have this sense that some people manage to live their lives as a prayer. Like their life is an expression of their faith, of their love, of their gratitude, whatever. So maybe there's these three kinds of prayer. I'm not sure. But you tell very, you tell this story that's both, I think, an example of synchronicity and perhaps an example of the power of prayer in a very specific form when you pray for a hundred dollars. Oh, oh, yeah, that, that's a, that's great. I mean, so, so I had, I had, I had been a humanities fellow in the med school at the University of Michigan and I was moonlighting at the University of Detroit. Hey, thanks so much for listening to part one of my interview with Stephen Post. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education or who live in conflict zones. There's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at brianmiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com.